The following lecture was delivered at the 13th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Providence, Rhode Island, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Mrs. Rivka Slonim will now present her lecture, Death and Mourning in Judaism. Good morning. We're going to start forthwith so we could use all of our time. Um, I want to explain what this class is or is not. So I know you have a lot of choices and the time is limited. And if you choose to go somewhere else, I will not be insulted because I want you to get the maximum you can out of every session. Um, this is a very um, action-based class. I'm just going to go through the laws and customs involved in um, the time immediately after death of a loved one, um, and depending on what your background is and what your experience has been, some of this may be very elementary. I'm hoping that for everybody there'll be something new, um, but I just want you to understand it's not primarily philosophical or mystical, it's primarily uh, action-based. Here are the handouts, and I apologize again for the embarrassing um, typo on the cover page. Okay, so we are going to begin um, with a disclaimer, and that is that there is no way that in a time as limited as I have that I can do an exhaustive survey of all of the laws and customs. And there are so many possible iterations and permutations, and so it's very important to be in touch with a rabbi who can guide the family uh, when death does occur. Uh, so what I'm going to be doing is, is looking at those laws and customs that would apply in almost any given case. And we're gonna, we're gonna switch back and forth between the laws and customs that apply to the deceased and the laws and customs that apply to those mourning the deceased. I'm going to begin um, with text one. Um, that just gives us a basic uh, point of departure, a way of looking at the subject. And text one comes from a basic book on the subject of death called Gesher HaChayim, The Bridge of Life, and, and uh, states the following. Anyone who works with a corpse must know that they are handling a holy item. The body of a person is not only a vessel for something holy, having contained the lofty soul. Rather, it itself is sanctified with its own holiness, similar to a Torah scroll. Therefore, Torah covers which are worn out. I think this is so beautiful, although this is not done today. But there's a absolutely breathtaking poignancy in this. Torah covers, which are worn out, are made into shrouds for mes mitzvah. They can be used to shroud a deceased Jew who doesn't have close relatives or friends who can take care of all of the arrangements. This deceased person who is basically left alone becomes the responsibility of the community to the extent that the high priest who is not permitted to make himself impure, to go to the funeral of even his closest relatives, can himself attend to the arrangements that need to be made for a met mitzvah. It's an astounding statement on collective responsibility in our religion and tradition. But here the poignancy is that the Torah covers, which would otherwise be put into Geniza, would otherwise be buried with other holy items that have fallen into a state of disrepair or disuse, can be used to shroud the mate mitzvah, for just as the Torah scroll is holy, so is the body. The truth of the matter is that we could spend a long time just talking about this idea, especially as understood through the lens of Hasidut and Kabbalah, and the idea that while we conventionally see the body as being in certain ways antithetical to the soul and how they have different agendas, the soul wants to go upwards, the body wants to you know, be involved with the temporal, the physical, the material, but the truth is that According to Hasidus and Kabbalah, it's the physical aspects of this world that actually most showcase the essence of God. 
And we're taught that in the Messianic era, the soul will be nourished by the body. Something to chew on. The soul will be nourished by the body. Uh, but here we have uh, this idea, which I thought we would lead with, just so that we understand that everything and anything having to do with the corpse, with the deceased, is in a state of tremendous sanctity and holiness. In general, <clears throat> we're taught that it is a positive thing, an important thing, a wonderful thing for a person to prepare a last will and testament. Now, while this may sound elementary, and why would you need anything in Jewish tradition to indicate this, a lot of people, I think, harbor the belief that um, that not talking about death will make sure it doesn't happen. And uh, as we all know, it doesn't work that way. And our tradition actually encourages people to draw up a will, um, to take care of those kinds of things. We're actually taught that buying a plot and even buying shrouds during one's lifetime is a sigula. It's a conduit for the blessing of long life. So um, that just wanted to put that out there. Just a few things before we go back into the text. If a dying person is conscious... He should be engaged in either prayer or discussion of Torah. Uh, a dying person should take that opportunity to say important things to their children at that time. On a very pragmatic level, um, and there are a lot of details in this, but basically when the person is in the last phase just before death, one should not move them, one should not feed them, uh, one should really only take care of their most basic needs and, of course, put them in as much comfort as possible. Uh, but the only thing one should do is render the medical care that is necessary. And that is, if you look at um, text 2, <clears throat> in Proverbs, the lamp of the Lord is the soul of man. And there are many things that come out of this idea that fire, a flame, is the best physical uh, representation of a soul. And one of the reasons for this is because a flame always wants to go upward, as the soul always wants to rise back to its source. So there are many sources that say that when you touch a person or when you engage with a person, if it's not absolutely necessary, of course, anything that has to be done should be done. But if not absolutely necessary, it's like a flickering flame. And any intervention at that point might actually take them out of this world sooner. And so one has to be careful about that. If possible, a person should confess his sins before dying. There is actually a, um, a way of doing this in a, in a liturgy called vidui. A dying person should never be left unattended. There should be someone with them all the time. It's considered meritorious to be present during the leave-taking of the soul from the body unless a person feels that they will not be able to control themselves from emoting in such a way that would give pain to the person who is passing. But otherwise, it's considered a zechut, it's considered meritorious to be present. If at all possible, if at all possible, it's preferable to have a minion um, because it says that the divine presence then is in the room in a more concentrated matter. It's important that while the person is in this twilight zone, quite, quite practically, that is not the time to make arrangements for after death. In other words, the person should make arrangements earlier in their life in terms of their will, if they want to buy plots, shrouds, and so on and so forth. But it is considered wrong to kind of be making those preparations as the person has not yet passed the threshold from this world to the next. One of the things I wanted to do here is show you how the various customs and laws are rooted in our texts. Because I find that a lot of people, um, are skeptical, skeptical regarding some of the laws and customs. And so it was important for me to show you just how deeply rooted they are. For instance, in my town, it is almost unheard of for anybody to tear their garment in mourning. The black button with a ribbon has become ubiquitous. And so the, things like that I want to point out. 
Um, text two. This, um, text three, I'm sorry, is from the book of Exodus. And um, just to give you the context, this is that um, very memorable moment where Moses says, God, I want to see you. And God says, not my face, only my back, for man cannot see me and live. And it's based on this verse that there is a custom that if the eyes of the deceased were open when the person passed, that they should be closed gently, um, and if possible, by a child, if a child is there. Text four, also from the Bible, as you could see, Genesis, uh, where the Torah tells us, and Jacob gathered up his feet onto the bed and expired. And it's based on this verse uh, that it is considered the proper thing to straighten out the limbs of the deceased if the person died in a way that's unseemly or undignified for whatever reason. Um, in the olden days, uh, people used to uh, secure a slackened jaw and do other things to sort of just write the body and put it in a more dignified uh, manner. Text five, also from Genesis, and Abraham rose up from among the face of his dead. Based on this, it is a Jewish tradition that the deceased is never placed face down on his or her face, but the face is always face up, and it is a proper thing for the body to be covered with a white sheet. The very first thing to do when a person passes, and actually this should probably be done a little bit before, is to make arrangements with the Hevra Kadisha. Uh, those are Aramaic words, which mean the holy society. There is a group for, that takes care of men. There's a group that takes care of women. And I will go through the various um, responsibilities of the Hevra Kadisha, but in a city uh, with a larger population and a more uh, organized Hevra Kadisha, they will also be the people who will help expedite the process of having the body discharged from the, from the hospital and bringing the deceased to a Jewish funeral home if there is. I come from a very, very small town. I'm part of the Hevra Kadisha. We don't have the infrastructure to do these kinds of things. Um, and we basically will come to, uh, the funeral parlor, and they allow us to do our things there. But if you live in a large city, you should make arrangements with a Hever Kadisha. Another very important thing is to make arrangements that the body not be left alone, not be left unattended from the moment of death until burial. And um, the next two Verse, well, actually, text six, very quickly from Proverbs, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. We talked a little bit about this, the sensitivity in the room of the person who is, who is near dying. And even after death, there are certain things that should not, that are considered mocking the poor, eating, laughing, uh, drinking. But here's a very interesting thing. Doing mitzvot in the room of the deceased is considered a form of mocking the poor. This person is now impoverished. They've become indigent because they no longer have the opportunity and the possibility of doing mitzvot. So doing mitzvot right in front of them is considered mocking the poor, as it were. And based on this, there's even a custom that when people go to a cemetery, if they, if men, if they're normally wearing their tzitzit, the fringes out, they will tuck the fringes in so as to not mock the poor who no longer have the great privilege of wearing tzitzit. You wanted to say something. Okay, let's go to that now. Text 7a and 7b. Text 7a. So this comes from the Talmud in Brachot. One who watches over the deceased, even though it is not his dead relative, is exempt from the recitation of Shema, from the Amida prayer, from phylacteries, and from all mitzvot mentioned in the Torah. Okay, so the Talmud ruled that although these are basic commandments to say the Shema, to say the Amidah, the silent prayer, to wear tefillin, and all the other mitzvot, but watching over the deceased takes priority. The Breitah continues, if two individuals were watching over the deceased, this one watches and that one recites the Shema, and then that one watches, this one recites Shema. In other words, they switch off. Ben Azai says that they were traveling with the deceased on a boat 
They are permitted to set the deceased down in this corner of the boat and both pray in another corner of the boat. So here you have both of these um, ideas being alluded to, the fact that it is so important to watch over the deceased and also not to engage in mitzvot in front of the deceased. Now, why is that the case? First, I wanted to show you how deeply rooted this idea is in Jewish law. And now for why. So we have here two reasons. The guarding of a dead body is for two reasons. One, for its honor. For if the body were left alone, it would be abandoned as if it were not wanted anymore and left in disgrace. Okay? So in other words, the body as we began in our very first text is not utilitarian. It's not a lampshade. And now that the bulb is out, you don't need the shade anymore. Okay? Also, and this is very, very important, as we'll see in further texts, the soul hovers over the body. So it's the honor for the body and it's the honor for the soul that is very much present. Second, the body is a holy vessel from which the soul was emptied and according to the mystics, the negative forces flow towards it to fill it. So everybody's familiar with the expression, nature abhors a vacuum. That is true in the physical dimension because it is first and foremost true in the spiritual reality. So every space is a container. And if it's not filled with holiness, it will be filled with the opposite. And in fact, the more holy the energy and the light in the vessel, when that vessel is emptied, the more it becomes a magnet for forces of impurity and lack of holiness. As the example given of a barrel, which was emptied of honey, that insects and rodents are attracted to it, as it is written in the Zohar, as long as the body is not buried, the negative forces are prepared to enter it and defile the body, and it is written similarly elsewhere. Now, I don't want to uh, leave you with the impression that there isn't another reason that was historically true that is no longer problematic for us, and that is that before there was refrigeration, there was very real concern that a body would begin to decompose and rodents would be attracted to it for very, very basic reasons. So guarding the body was important on that very basic level to make sure that the body was not overrun and that it, it didn't lose its um, wholeness and... Uh, and its viability to, to unseemly uh, predators. Okay. But that's no longer really applicable today. Uh, but in, the, in, in uh, time gone by, and I don't know if anyone is familiar with this idea, but there are references in Jewish law to lowering the body to the floor immediately after death. And again, this is not done anymore really because that was done because heat rises. So you wanted to place the body in a place where it, the temperature could be kept as cold as possible. People would put metal or metallic vessels on the body to keep it, keep the, the temperature as low as possible. Okay, we move on. Text eight. Yeah, sure. As far as I know, yeah. I think there are still communities where people do it. Yeah, yeah, I think there's still communities where this is done, but, but not so much anymore. I, like I, it's definitely not done as far as I've seen in hospitals, nursing homes, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually believe it was for pragmatic reasons alone. Um, another big thing, there are many customs, various customs concerning lighting candles. There are customs in some communities to light a candle as the soul is leaving. There are customs in communities to light candles right after the soul has left. But definitely, as you know, candles are a salient theme, and that goes back to one of the texts we did. Text 8 from Ecclesiastes. As he came forth from his mother's womb naked, so shall he return to go as he came. He shall take nothing from his labor that he may carry away in his hand. Uh, so from this, from this source, we learn that there are extenuating circumstances and there are certain times where this is not the case. But in the norm, 
a person is not buried with jewelry or other personal items and effects. You go like you came. So we go with what we've accomplished, not with what we've amassed. Yes, certainly, yes, a shroud, but I'm talking about uh, jewelry or other items that people sometimes want to bury with the person. Again, there are, there are exceptions, uh, but this is, this is the norm. So now we're going to <clears throat> switch for a moment from the deceased. So just to review, we've called the Hever Kadisha to make the proper arrangements so that the deceased will be moved to where, in, uh, to where he or she needs to be moved pr- in a proper way and in, with alacrity and uh, also made arrangements for somebody to stay with the body. And sometimes this means hiring people to sit in the funeral home uh, with the deceased and so on and so forth. Okay. Now, the mourners. The mourners at this point have entered into the first stage of mourning known as aninut. This, and so the person who's in a stage of aninut is an onen. This is the most concentrated um, phase of the mourning periods that unfurl, and we will go through all of those periods. And aninut begins with the death of the, of the relative and ends when the person is buried. So let's talk about who is a mourner halachically. From the perspective of Jewish law, there are seven uh members who are considered the closest kin, a spouse, a child, a sibling, a parent. Okay. So it's mother, father, brother, sister, um, and spouse. And who am I missing? And siblings, brother, sister, mother, father, son, daughter, and spouse. Okay. Now I just want to take a moment to say that there are times where, for whatever reason, tragically, a child has been uh, estranged from their parents. Nevertheless, from the perspective of halacha, they are mourners and have an obligation towards the deceased and also to comport themselves properly during the various stages of mourning. Conversely, there are times where a person feels very, very connected to somebody. They feel as close as a child. And yet, halakhically, unless there is, again, some extenuating circumstance, it is not considered proper for somebody who is not actually considered halakhically a mourner to engage in the various mourning rites. So again, it flips the emphasis from what I'm feeling to an objective reality that dictates how one must act. Uh, adopted parents is uh, is a an issue that's been discussed widely in, in responsum. And from what I understand, and I'm certainly not, uh, you know, rabbinic authority, but from what I understand, that is considered a situation where the children feel like this is their parents. They sit shiva, they tear their clothing, and so on and so forth. Right. Well, that's why I said if they if they feel this way, yes, absolutely. All right. So um, we see this reflected in a very ancient source, text nine in Leviticus, and this comes from a dialogue between Moses and Aaron. And you may or may not be familiar with the biblical saga of Aaron, who was the high priest and the older brother of Moses. And he suddenly, and in very dramatic fashion, loses two of his sons. They die. And this happens during a period of um, festivity for the Jewish people because the tabernacle has just been inaugurated and there are all kinds of festivities taking place. And in the midst of this, you have the dramatic exit from this world of two of Aaron's sons. Now, Aaron, being the high priest, is charged with the task of bringing all kinds of sacrifices to God. And so there's a discussion because Moses thinks that Aaron should bring a certain sacrifice. And Aaron says, if I had eaten the sin offering today, while I am in deep mourning, would it have been pleasing in the eyes of the Lord? This is a rhetorical question. Aaron is saying to Moses, sorry, little big bro, but you're wrong. I'm right. I can't engage in this mitzvah, in the sanctified act now when I am in a state of aninut, deep mourning. So during this time, all obligation to positive mitzvot is suspended for 
those that are mourning. Text 10. This comes from the same part of the Torah. And this is very interesting. First, we see how deeply rooted is the rending of garments. This is not a custom that started in the shtetl. This is not some primitive rite. Okay? This is mentioned in the Bible. And Moses says to Aaron, yes, you have lost two of your sons, but do not rend your garments because the Jewish people in its entirety are in a state of heightened festivity. And just like on Shabbat or on a Jewish holiday, there are no public manifestations of mourning. You can't dictate the inner landscape. But the mourner doesn't walk around in their rent clothing on Shabbat. In the same way, Moses said to Aaron, do not rend your garment. Which means that generally speaking, a Jew rends the garment. And this is done at the funeral. That is, it is done at the same time that a blessing is said, uh, basically exclaiming the justice of God, even in this moment of deep sorrow and anguish and tragedy, the Jew still upholds their belief that God is a just judge. And that's when the, um, the garment is rent, uh, most classically at the lapel, and it's done on the right side unless one is mourning their parent, at which time the lapel is cut on the left side. Uh, the person who does this makes the first cut, let's say the rabbi or the rebbitzin or somebody who's helping, and then the mourner themselves continues to pull down the lapel to make the rent more um, elongated and to express the deep way in which there is a rent in their life that will that will never be resolved. And that's why for a parent it's done on the left side because that's over the heart. Um, text 11 from Proverbs, and charity will deliver from death. So there is a quite an emphasis on charity being given in a shiva home, being given immediately even after death, and in general, charity being given um, to elevate the soul of the deceased. And at the same time, for those who are left in this world mourning, to give practical expression to their grief and basically to turn tears into action, to do something good for this world instead of um, turning inward and wallowing in their, in, 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 in their grief, but understanding that life is a privilege and going forward and, and doing good with that time and with the resources. Text 12, book of Genesis, Sarah died, and Abraham came to eulogize Sarah and to weep for her. A few things, I just want to point out that according to tradition, the eulogy that Abraham came, gave for Sarah is actually retained. It is the song um, that is traditionally sung in Jewish homes on Friday night, Eshet Chayel, A Woman of Valor. King Solomon included it in the book of Proverbs and gave us that intel on what it was that Abraham said for Sarah. So that's kind of a poignant thing I wanted to share with you. Um, I also wanted to point out, uh, interestingly enough, that of course there's a custom to eulogize the dead. But in more mystically steeped communities, eulogies are actually not given. And the reason for this is because it is often the case that eulogies um, tilt towards the hyperbolic. And uh, the problem with that for the soul is that when the soul comes on high, it's actually taken to task for everything that was said about it that it didn't do. So it may not be such a favor to wax nostalgic in such a way that uh, adds layers and layers to reality, and then the soul has to answer for that. That doesn't mean uh, that there aren't opportunities to memorialize the deceased at the end of 30 days and so on and so forth. But I just thought I would, um, I would throw that out to you. Text 13. We could do an entire session just on uh, discussing the idea of how important it is for Jew to be interred underground in the earth. I'm not going to do that right now. I'm simply going to say that it is 
categorically and absolutely prohibited for Jews' remains to be treated in any other way. It is crucially important that everybody understand this. If you're in a position to make sure that your relatives or friends are buried properly, unfortunately, there is a greater and greater and greater percentage of Jews that are choosing cremation. Tragically, tragically. And people have all kinds of erroneous information about this, including the fact that they think they're saving the planet, which is laughable because actually the process of cremation emits, emits a lot worse toxins. And burying a body in the earth is actually very good for our planet. But that's, that, that's all besides the point. It is absolutely crucial that we do everything we can to raise awareness about this. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It is also very important to be attentive to the fact that in Jewish law, the body should be buried in its entirety. Um, so without uh, taking you to scenes that are too gruesome, I will just say that some of you may remember those scenes that flashed across the TV scenes, uh, TV screens when uh, buses were being bombed in Israel, and you would see these groups of people swoop in in yellow, very bright yellow jackets, the Zaka team, and they would literally, literally climb trees, climb walls, and scour the entire immediate area for a skin, bone fragments, soak up all the blood, because it's imperative that a Jew be buried in their entirety. Um, and so it's very important to be attentive to this. If a person has spent the last years hooked up to various instruments and their pipes and so on and so forth, these need to be taken care of very, very carefully so that no skin and no blood is lost. Sometimes a person is even buried with the sheet that they were lying on uh, when they left this world so as to not lose uh, the blood that is there. Text 14 indicates uh, that the person should be buried on the same day. Uh, the exceptions here, well, of course, when it's not possible, sometimes people die in countries uh, where they're not going to be buried, and there are countries where you cannot bury underground, so they have to be taken to a different place. There are times where the funeral is held up uh, out of respect for the deceased because the closest relatives are unable to come. But generally speaking, the funeral should take place as soon as possible. And just to share an interesting custom, in the city of Jerusalem, the custom is to bury literally immediately so that the body does not um, remain even overnight. It's a remarkable thing. Literally, as soon as the person dies, they're taken to the funeral home, and within an hour or two, the funeral takes place. Sometimes it takes place at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. It's surreal. Okay, text 15. Again, I don't know what your experience is, but in my experience, a lot of people are not sitting shiva for shiva. Uh, so the word shiva means seven. And uh, the, the Jewish law indicates that a person sit in mourning, the closest relative sit in mourning for seven days. Uh, but I notice this has become truncated from seven to three and sometimes from three to one and a half. And in the one and a half, there are certain calling hours. Uh, so I wanted to point out two different texts for you. In Genesis, and Joseph observed a period of mourning for his father, Jacob, for seven days. This is not a subliminal suggestion. This is quite clear. And of the book of Job, and they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. Um, there are so many different things to say. So let me just as quickly as possible say as much as I can. Okay, first for the mourners, sitting Shiva means you're sitting shiva, unless you're in the bathroom or you're lying down. Uh, but the mourner is not permitted to engage in work, uh, not domestic work, cooking and so on and so forth, and not their professional work. Um, this is really a time for them to be comforted by those around them, for them to mourn and grieve and um, process this in the way that they need to. But it's not a time to be engaged in the things that distract us for most of our life. 
in terms of people who are coming to pay a shiva call, I have been to enough shivas that felt like cocktail parties. And I hope I never have to do that again, but the odds are I will again and again. Shiva is for a very specific purpose, to show your respects and to comfort the mourner. It is not a time to talk about your husband's orthodontic work and your daughter's skill riding her horse. I understand that sometimes people are uncomfortable when they pay a shiva call. Maybe that's why the host feels compelled to have waiters circulating, uh, you know, with the d'oeuvres. But shiva is for one purpose only, to pay respect to the deceased, and the second is to comfort the mourner. And therefore, a few things. First, within shiva, the first three days are considered to be the more intense time of mourning. Traditionally, this was a time for people who are closer to the family to come, relatives. The wound is still very, very fresh and oozing. So it's not the time really to come to somebody who you just feel obligated because you did carpool with them 10 years ago or you live on the same block, but you don't really have a strong emotional attachment, okay? It actually is mandated that the person who is sitting Shiva begin the conversation, which means if they don't want to talk, then the person who is comforting them, who came to comfort them, should sit quietly and respectfully. It is very often the case that because of our own discomfort, we seek to fill the silence, most often with nonsense. If the person doesn't want to talk, they are depleted emotionally, physically, you have done what you have to do by being there. You have given them the gift of your presence. That's all you have to do. If they choose to start a conversation and talk with you, the best thing you can do is talk about the deceased. Share a memory. Maybe you know something that they just didn't know. Something wonderful the deceased did. This is the greatest gift. This is the greatest comfort. Um, now, I want to go through a series of texts that I find um, beautiful, even breathtaking. And um, these, these explain certain customs. For instance, it is a custom for the Shiva to be held, if at all possible. Oh, Gewalt, 10 minutes left. There's no way I can do this. Um, we've literally just begun. It is a custom for the Shiva to be held in the home where the deceased lived, if at all possible. And now you can see why. For three days, the soul hovers above the body, considering whether to return. After three days, when it sees that the face has changed, it leaves the body and it departs. And based on this, there are a lot of sources that say that the soul also hovers in the home where it spent its years. It's not always possible to have the Shiva in that home, but if it is possible, there is a reason it's done there. Now, the next, uh, the next source tells us, all seven days of mourning, the soul leaves the house and goes to the grave, and from the grave to the house, so again, you see the emphasis on the house, and mourns the body, and after seven days, it goes on its way to its place. So you see the two stages. Well, three stages so far we have Aninut, the first three days of Shiva, and then the complete Shiva. Now we're introducing the next stage of mourning. The Talmud says, all those 30 days, the soul and the body are judged as one, and thus the soul is found below. After that, the soul departs and the body erodes in the earth. But you know, or you may know, that there is yet another stage of mourning, specifically for parents, and that is a year. And the Talmud says, for 12 months, the body exists and the soul ascends and descends. After 12 months, the body becomes null and the soul rises and does not return. But we will actually return to that idea that the soul does not return in a moment. But I just want to say that based on text 20, and I'm not saying that this is law. I'm saying that there is a custom of not visiting the deceased within the first year after death in deference to the fact that the soul has uh, 
business to take care of during that time. And so basically to leave them to what they need to do before coming to the soul with any requests of our own that concern our business down here. Text 21. When the child says Kaddish for his father or mother, it is like sending regards. It is very, very important that if there isn't a child that is going to say Kaddish and they're not going to commit themselves to saying Kaddish regularly, three times a day for 11 months, somebody should be hired to do this. It is extremely important for this to be done. This gives the soul ascendancy. If you look at the Kaddish, it doesn't mention anything about a soul in Kaddish. It is a declaration, an exclamation about God's greatness. How this helps the soul is basically this is verification, this is validation, this is proof positive that the person who left this world made God a priority in their life, so much so that there are people who they impacted who are extolling the greatness of God on a regular basis. However, the importance of the source is to put this in perspective. Kaddish is very, very important, but is by far not the only thing that needs to be done for the soul. So when the child says Kaddish for his father or mother, it's like sending regards. When he learns a chapter of Mishnah, note that the word Mishnah has the same letters as the word Nishama soul, on their behalf, it's like sending them a letter. And when he fulfills mitzvot and good deeds for the benefit of the soul, it's like sending them an entire package. And everybody that's been to camp knows that the highest level of prestige is when you get a package. So um, this is important for us to realize. You know, uh, when you walk into a shul or a Jewish building and you see signs that this is an honor or memory of so-and-so, and you say, oh, these Jews are brilliant, what they don't think of to make money. But this is not just a brilliant fundraising tactic. In fact, the soul on high depends on those connected to him or her in this world to do mitzvot so as to catapult him or her higher in the levels above. Okay? Because the soul bereft of its body has now been disabled as it were. It can no longer do mitzvahs on its own behalf. But those connected to the soul can propel the soul to higher and higher levels. And so it's of utmost importance to keep that in mind. In fact, I'm quite infatuated with text 22. It's, it's quite beautiful. After we pledge charity on behalf of the deceased on Yom Kippur, how does it help the deceased once the living gives that charity on their behalf? Answer. God examines the hearts of the living and the dead and can see if the dead would have wanted to give charity themselves. Isn't that beautiful and astounding? And a testimony to the dynamic relationship that ensues after death. The Rebbe was not very fond of the term afterlife. He referred to death as higher life. A soul never ends. A soul is eternal, as is the relationship between the soul and those left behind. I want to do text 23 before I get the five-minute signal and then the one-minute and zero-time signal um, because I think it helps answer a lot of questions. And a question a lot of people have is, <clears throat> look, why is it so important to go to the gravesite? I could communicate with the soul of my aunt, my mother, my father, my grandparent. I could sit in my den, close my eyes, and communicate. Why do I have to go to the grave? So text 23 from the Zohar, the basic book of Jewish mysticism, teaches that the soul of man is called by three names, Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama. These are the three lower levels of the soul, as explained in Jewish mysticism. The Nefesh is present in the grave, and it hovers in this world to be among the living and to be acquainted with their pain. And at a time of need, it pleads for mercy for them. So although we have had um, sources that have alluded to the fact that after a certain time, the soul rises, it does not leave this world in its entirety. And this underscores the importance of going to grave sites. Many people have a custom of going before Shoshana Yom Kippur. Uh, there are customs, certain families, they will bring invitations to weddings in the family, to the grave sites of the grandparents and the parents. People will go when they need help, when they need salvation. 
When the inhabitants of the world are in need, when they are in sorrow and they go to the cemetery, the nefesh awakens, it goes and floats and awakens the ruach, and the ruach is awakened at the place of the patriarchs, it ascends and arouses the neshama, and then the Holy One, blessed be He, has mercy on the world. It's important for us to recognize, for us to appreciate the interplay and the dynamic at the grave. And this, of course, helps explain very, very clearly why Jews for time immemorial have been going to the graves of great tzaddikim. Because there is an aspect of the neshama that is there always. Now, Um, okay, um, my good friend here says that her daughter feels more connected to the Rebbe when she goes to the Rebbe's library. I want to be very careful with this. Okay, there is a term in Hebrew called hergesh, which means feeling. Everybody is entitled to their feeling, okay? But in terms of what we're taught this is what we're taught. Furthermore, um, I think that Lubavitcher Rebbe's life is a pretty good model for what uh, people should do if they're looking to live a life according to halacha and according to uh, mystical teachings and so on and so forth. And he made an uncountable number of trips to the graveside of his father-in-law. Now, I'm not looking to negate or uproot your daughter's feelings. She is entitled to her feeling. A feeling and facts are two different things. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's actually, this is not about my sharing my thoughts. <laughs> Uh, uh, like I said, everybody's entitled to their feelings, everybody's entitled to their thoughts, but you are entitled to getting a presentation based on facts. Um, and uh, if it's at all possible, a Jew should not be buried in a non-Jewish cemetery without some demarcation around them. Okay, so if the soul hovers there, and interestingly enough, um, what's her name? Marlene made a comment that it's her feeling that a cemetery is for the living and not for the dead. And uh, I, I understand where you're coming from, but I think it's important to understand that the cemetery is very much, first and foremost, but not exclusively, uh, the place where the soul, a part of the soul, will live forever. A, a cemetery is called a Beit HaChayim, a house of the living, because the soul lives eternally. And once you understand that, everything else is commentary in terms of where you want to be buried. So the Jewish soul wants to be buried amongst Jewish souls. In small towns, actually, I live in a very small town, USA, and we have three Jewish cemeteries. <laughs> Well, trust me when I say it's a small town. But uh, in general, again, from time immemorial, one of the first things Jews have done is actually make sure that they had a plot. It doesn't have to be large, and it doesn't have to be beautiful, but it was exclusively for, for the Jewish souls. Yeah, with a choma, fenced off. Correct. It just has to be demarcated. Question, if a person is cremated, uh, should you say Kaddish for them? It's... Um, it's my it's my understanding actually um, that while Kaddish is said for eleven months, and the reason Kaddish is said for eleven months is because, and, and a lot of people don't know that unlike Christianity, there is no such thing as being damned to hell forever, but every soul does have to pass through Gehenna. Think of Gehenna as kind of a spiritual dry cleansing for the soul, and there is a fire. It's the fire of Shame. And modern psychology has put shame to shame. 
But shame is actually a very helpful emotion. A good working definition for shame is the difference between who you are and who you know you could have been. And that shame is the burning fire and it cleanses the soul. But the soul doesn't stay in Gehenna longer than it needs for its cleansing. The maximum amount of time is 12 months, which is why the custom is to stop saying Kaddish after 11 months, with which to signal that the person I'm saying Kaddish for couldn't possibly need the maximum amount of time. But it's my understanding, and I could be wrong, that the person who's cremated should have Kaddish set for 12 months. That they, that they need uh, that extra elevation, as it were. I just wanted to, because um, I told you that I would just tell you very, very briefly what the Hever Kaddisha does. And I think that this is important for all of you to understand. So the Hever Kaddisha in a larger, more organized, uh, larger Jewish community may take care of a lot of the like technical arrangements. But the basic responsibility of the Hever Kaddisha is to do three things. Number one, to cleanse the body. And this is done with a tremendous amount of sensitivity, so much so that while I've noticed that generally speaking, people have forgotten that you're not supposed to put your hand in front of somebody to get the ketchup, you're supposed to ask them. But the Hever Kaddisha will never hand something to someone on the other side of the body uh, or in any way do anything to slight the, the deceased. There's no talking whatsoever. Everything is done by pantomime. There's an enormous understanding that the soul is hovering and watching everything. After the body is cleansed completely, the central, the heart and soul of the, of the, of the Tara process, which means a purification, is actually to purify the body. Again, if it's a Jewish funeral home in a larger city, there's going to be a mikvah in the funeral home. And the, the deceased is lowered into the mikvah for their final purification before they leave this world. In a small city where there's no mikvah in uh, the funeral home, like for instance in our case, for the men, they stand the body up and they pour water in a certain way. Uh, for the women, we, we um, basically through using a series of planks of wood, we have the body on an incline and then carefully pour buckets of water over the body, thus effecting, you can come in, uh, I'll, I'll be finished in a moment and your next session will begin, uh, thus effecting the, uh, the purification. Finally, the body is dressed. And there is certain liturgy that is said as each one of the articles of the shrouds is placed on the body. It's actually very beautiful and very moving. Uh, there is earth from the from Israel sprinkled at the bottom of the coffin. The body is laid gently into the coffin. Before the coffin is closed, the head of the Hever Kaddisha will call out the deceased by their Hebrew name and ask them forgiveness for any slight and anything that may have been done that caused them an indignity. There are many, many, many more details, many more customs, many more laws. This has just been a very, very short synopsis of, of some of the laws. Please visit MyJLI.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and TorahCafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.